Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani. Grace Wilsey was born with a genetic disorder so rare that at the time of her birth, it had never been identified in a single individual. NGLI-1 deficiency involves a single mutated gene, but it causes a wide range of physical and cognitive problems, including muscle weakness, speech deficiencies, and seizures. Grace's father, Matt, is with us today to share the journey his family has been on since her birth in 2009, which includes starting a foundation and a biotech company that are fueling research into NGLI-1 deficiency that could have an impact on more common diseases such as cancer and Parkinson's. The researchers involved include Nobel laureates Jennifer Dudna, Shinya Yamanaka, Brian Kobilka, and Carolyn Bertozzi. And before we get started, I'd like to thank uh, former uh, Raise Line podcast guest, Chelsea Clinton, who speaks so highly of Matt and his family. And uh, Matt, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to join you. Awesome. So well, we'd like to first start with getting some highlights of your uh, personal and professional journey before becoming a parent. Well, it's uh, I, I joke that I'm um, a, a jack of many trades and a, a master of none. Um, so I, I wore many hats really uh, before I got into biotech. Um, I started actually in government and public service. I had since the earliest moments of my life, I remember just uh, wanting to get into uh, public service and, and to work on something that was really larger than myself uh, to help as many people as I possibly could. So I um, uh, trained as an undergrad to get into government and uh, worked on a national presidential campaign, uh, worked in the White House and worked in the Pentagon. Um, and I, I, I joked that I wanted to see how the biggest, most bureaucratic organizations work so that I could then apply <laughs> the lessons to the to the startup world and what not to do, maybe. Um, and I, I went back uh, to Silicon Valley after those tours were done and uh, helped start a couple of different uh, tech companies uh, in Silicon Valley. And I, I really loved it. I felt, though, if I wanted to be a successful CEO and leader someday that I needed to go back uh, to business school. So I went back and got my accounting training, macroeconomic training, uh, HR training. And I thought, you know, I'll try my hand at private equity. You know, business school is a good time to pivot. And so I went to New York and did uh, private equity, right? In the worst possible time, probably in 2008, as the world was on fire. Um, and uh, I quickly realized I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> I, I prefer to be an operator. I like to build things and be involved um, from day one, sort of building and nurturing a team. And uh, came back to Silicon Valley and started two more tech companies. And um, around that time is when uh, Grace arrived. And it sort of, uh, I, I would say, kind of derailed um, all career plans and trajectories. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I mean, just being a parent and then obviously with, with Grace's diagnosis. So let's go into uh, NGLI-1 deficiency. You know, our audience, uh, obviously, they are healthcare professionals and students. But part of our focus on rare diseases is because they often don't even learn about these deficiencies until they meet a patient. And oftentimes that patient may take years to get diagnosed, as, as you well know. So uh, can you tell us a bit about NGLI deficiency? What causes it? Why does it cause so many systemic issues? And then we're going to go into Grace's personal story. Yes. Yeah. So it's an autosomal recessive disorder. So most of the audience will know that she had to inherit two bad copies of the gene, one from me and one from Kristen. Really just kind of unfortunate luck. We we had a three-year sort of diagnostic odyssey. And because there wasn't a, a lot known about the disease, um, I think sort of the timing of it, whole whole genome sequencing, even whole exome sequencing wasn't largely available. 
Um, and so this disease in particular was a little bit hard to pin down. It was misdiagnosed as uh, mitochondrial disease X or Y, uh, cerebral palsy, these catch-all buckets that the medical community kind of wants to attach a label to. And in a lot of ways, it's beneficial because you get services through that. But NGLI1 is really um, one of the most highly conserved genes known uh, to science. So it's fundamental to life. You can find it in just about everything. Um, and what it's really doing in humans, and it's it's ubiquitous, so it's in every cell in the body, it is uh, responsible for the proteasome bounce back mechanism. So as the cell is under stress, um, oxidative stress or other kinds of stress, you need the proteasome to uh, step in and help this help the cell recover. Basically, NGLI1 is there to help that process. It's a um, it's almost like a, a firefighter that's on call, you know, just sitting in the fire engine ready to go when there's a problem. Without that there, the cell just kind of over overwhelms itself with stress and starts to die. And um, the primary place where it's it's most affected is the central nervous system, the CNS. Um, we also see other issues in the liver and the eyes um, and the peripheral nervous system as well. But the CNS is really the primary um, hub that we're trying to address. And that's really where our first uh, drug is going to go to. That's amazing. Well, thanks for that explanation. And uh, and again, like you describe this impressive background you have from government, from business. And uh, again, any any audience member who tunes in, you know, can mistake you and for good reason as a as a bench scientist, just given how well you know this, because again, that's a common theme with all of our rare disease um, uh, guests is they they know the business really well or the, the medicine really well underlying the condition. Um, so tell us about Grace, about the diagnostic odyssey. How is Grace doing um, and how is it showing up? So she, I would say overall that she's she's well, she's stable. And I, I say that with a bit of um, trepidation because we we have lost a number of patients over the last two years. Um, our, our global community is roughly 100 patients that have been identified. Um, and we're probably at about 80 to 85 that are diagnosed and living at this point. So we, we've lost nine in the last two years, either to COVID, long-term COVID, or I often think of um, a kind of a broken heart because these patients are largely nonverbal and um, they're very social. And so without that element of being able to interact with teachers or therapists or friends at school, that there's really not that same fight to keep living. Um, but for Grace overall, I say she's, she's stable. She's very happy. She's very social still. She's back at school, thankfully, um, with, with the vaccine vaccines, the things that where the disease really manifests itself for her every day, she's fully dependent on care. So, uh, toileting, bathing, dressing, feeding, she has a G tube. She um, has a lacrima, so you know, dry eyes because of the loss of NGLI1. So we have to put in drops and ointment constantly. Um, so honestly, if if she was born maybe 50 years ago, not even like 100 years ago, she probably wouldn't have survived the birth. Um, and so now as we see as these patients get older, certain things are continuing to break down or fall apart much faster than they would in a, uh, a typically developing child. Or, or even a child that, or one of us as we age. Um, in a lot of ways, Kristen used to identify when we would go see clinicians, she's like, it's almost like she's got baby Parkinson's. You know, you try and attach a label to it to kind of frame it for them. Um, and, you know, those kind of clues, I think are really important, I think for clinicians that are that are watching. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. That's uh, and and that'll definitely come back that analogy of baby Parkinson's because certainly the work that you and Grace Science are doing could have implications to that far more well known and common condition. Um, so you know, you get this diagnosis. Obviously, things are going, um, things are confusing and going wrong with with Grace with the three year diagnostic odyssey, and a lot of parents or, or loved ones of these uh, patients who have these rare conditions uh, turn that. Um, anxiety, that fear, that heartbreak into something positive, and you've turned it into the Grace Foundation and Grace Science. Um, we've heard that from people like the Fulmers, who we had on, the EB Research Foundation, you may know them, John yes. Crowley, obviously, pretty well known, David Fagenbaum, who also uh, Chelsea Clinton's backing on that. You know, Tell us about your story. Like, How long was it until starting Grace Foundation and then uh, Grace Science, and what's the difference between the two? Yes, yeah. So, I mean, I even remember it was a, an emergency C-section. Um, and Kristen was full term caring grace. And I've never seen the red panic button hit faster in my life than, than that. I mean, the doctors and nurses were running all over the place, basically taking Kristen's clothes off in the hallway as they were rushing her down. And I was just given a chair cause I couldn't get my scrubs on to go in the operating room. So I was just sat outside and I, I just, honestly, I prayed to God and I just said, just get them both through this and I will do whatever it takes to develop the cure. And so I felt like that was my obligation to keep going forward. And initially we, we funded um, just through our family, we would write checks to like Stanford or to Baylor in Houston. And it might be one or two uh, principal investigators. And we just said, we're going to fund you to do X or Y. And uh, some other family and friends said, we'd like to support. And they would write checks to those same centers that we had sort of vetted. But what became clear is that we could raise a lot more money if we took on the responsibility of truly vetting and managing these organizations day in and day out, making sure that they were staying on track, holding them accountable, almost like a, a business, more of a business than a, than a foundation or just outright donations. So we started the Grace Science Foundation and uh, so far has deployed about $10 million, which obviously is not much for you know developing a cure but it's a lot when your disease is starting with zero dollars yeah. um and we we wanted to build the manhattan project essentially what we, what we've seen in COVID and that mobilization is what we were doing years ahead of time for angli one deficiency it was like get the best and the brightest in the world working on this disease and see what happens and i knew that we just kind of had to uh, be patient and 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 wait for that one breakthrough and that really came through uh, Carolyn Bertozzi, who was one of our grantees. And she sort of flipped the script and we said, okay, this is our aha moment. Now we have to start a company because that's really what's going to take these discoveries and translate them into humans. Yeah, no, that, that's fascinating. And, and again, turning that, uh, that, that fear and heartbreak into something so positive and 10 million, obviously from zero is, is incredible, especially when it comes to something that right now we've only identified a hundred patients with it, but Again, the underlying science is fascinating. So can you tell us about kind of the, the research um, with the prestigious group of collaborators you have? How is it going? Are there promising developments both for curing it, but also just uh, treating the symptoms? Yeah, I, there's a lot of promise. So uh, we've tried to try to um, get as many lines in the water as possible. And this actually was one of the early lessons from, from John Crowley, who has been a mentor, which is the the first therapy probably isn't going to be the end all be all we're going to probably layer on top other therapies especially as the patient's age and new things evolve you have to you have to tack with those with those phenotypes we really believe that the number one way that we can help these individuals 
is by delivering uh, gene therapy directly to the brain. So our, we've developed over the last few years a AV9 gene therapy that um, we, we've done a tremendous amount of uh, animal testing. Um, and we're actually submitting our IND to the FDA tomorrow. Um, oh, so we're hoping to be in the clinic uh, early early next year in 2023, and it can't come fast enough. We're trying to push as hard as possible. Um, but beyond that, um, we're, we have, I think, some other exciting therapies that are kind of coming, uh, backing up in the pipeline that I think will will have some good potential for, for these patients and beyond. Yeah, t tell us about some of that. I mean, um, you know, because that's one thing in our conversation with the Fulmers on epidermolysis pilosa, they're very hopeful that the next five years there'll be a, a cure for it. But similar to what you've described, it's multiple putting, you know, multiple uh, lines in the water because you don't know, you know, you need to do things in parallel. You don't know which ones will work, and uh, and hopefully we can find one of these things will work. So, what are some of the other things that kind of excite you uh, that are coming down the pipeline? Yeah, I mean, the thing that, well, for NGLI-1 deficiency specifically, there are some uh, small molecule uh, potentiators and small molecule inhibitors that are, you know, really enticing. It, um, the thing that obviously keeps me up at night there is what are the off-target effects? What what are you uh, helping? But on the same side, what are you potentially hurting? Because we we fundamentally believe in the, the do no harm mantra. You know, I think a lot of rare disease advocates such as myself might get mistaken for for moving too fast and the fact is we we have the greatest incentive to make sure that the drug is uh, is max safety it's very different than uh, than than another type of organization that does not have is not living with the patient um, um, but the thing that really kind of blew my mind is um, is Carolyn Bertozzi's work that really opened this whole new world for us. It's like we, I, I joke that we were stepping through the looking glass I mean, we just didn't even know this world existed. And um, uh, initially we thought Engli-1 was just sort of a boring housekeeping gene. And she was the first to sort of say, no, this is actually more fundamental. This is, um, this is really responsible for handling cell stress. And that's where we knew that it was really a, a gateway, a, almost a Rosetta stone, probably for multiple oncologies. Um, and, we are working now on a small molecule inhibitor for cancer. And, um, we, you know, it's still not going to be in the clinic next year, but we, we hope in the next couple of years that it will be. And it's, it's, it gives us a lot of hope, not just for the patients that started this, that is really our North star, but how does this impact millions of people, potentially millions of families? Um, and, and that gives us a lot of, um, incentive and motivation to keep going on the hard days you know you just can't give up and if we don't pursue this no one else is going to um and so we we really want to be that spark and then look for partners that can can help us uh take it you know beyond our expertise totally totally and part of the kind of the um benefit i think of investing in these uh rare disease research uh studies Apart from obviously the number one thing being, you know, grace and families and patients affected uh, with NGLI-1 is the potential impact that the research itself can can have on other more common conditions. So the examples we often cite are statin development from research in familial hypercholesteremia or tocilizumab, which was developed for Castleman's being very useful for severe COVID-19 cases. Tell us a bit about maybe the science and, and, you know, I mentioned cancer, Parkinson's, you know, what are the, how come the, the research that your team is doing or funding at least um, can, can impact to such disparate um, types of diseases or seemingly disparate diseases? 
Right. And then, you know, I, I like to think, I, I think often, uh, so I'm dyslexic. So I think oftentimes in terms of analogies and um, I, I think of Englide one as almost this uh, airplane engine, you know, it's like controlling the, the 747 engines and we can throttle it up for more power. And in that case, we would want it for neurodegeneration and we want to actually throttle it down or maybe off completely in the case of cancer. And, and it goes back to that that cell homeostasis you know sometimes the cell needs more and sometimes the cell needs less or very little and maybe that's for just a short period of time um and so that's really what we're 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 trying to dedicate a a a big part of our team now is unlocking this and you know it's funny if like so grace is 13 if when she was 12 i went to 100 investors or donors and i said rare diseases unlock common diseases that we as a society are probably spending billions of dollars on every year. I think I might've gotten like one out of a hundred to agree with me. If I do that same conversation now, it's like 99 out of a hundred. It is shocking how fast. I mean, it's like, you know, you, you hear the story about baby aspirin and how quickly that was adopted by, you know, cardiologists and general practitioners. Like it took, it took something ridiculous, like 17 years, right? In this case, the idea that a rare disease unlocks a common disease, it happened lightning fast. And we're we're not even scratching the surface of what's potential, uh, not just with NGLI-1 deficiency, but every rare disease. And there should be, in theory, 20,000 rare diseases, right? If you think about every gene could be a rare disease. Um we're not even we're not even halfway there in terms of identifying these diseases and then understanding what's the hub and spoke from those hubs. Um so I'm super excited about it, as you can tell. <laughs> that is really exciting. And I, you're actually the first guest we've had on who's actually made that that full connection because we often cite 7,000 plus rare diseases. Um, and some people say 10,000, clearly you know, 20,000 genes. And uh, they're, they're, there's someone in the world, we may not have met them, they may have been born in rural Uganda. We just can't reach them yet who have a rare disease we've never even heard of and being able to exactly. help them, but then uh, unlock common, as you mentioned, you know, we, our audience at Osmosis used to be just health professional students primarily, as well as patients and family members. Since we joined Elsevier a year ago, we now clearly have uh, a large audience of researchers. And one of our hopes and, and what we've been able to do is kind of make this research more accessible, trying to open access a lot of rare disease research. And that includes our, our CEO, Kumsal, uh, who's been super supportive of the initiatives we've done in rare diseases. You know, what advice do you have for researchers and clinicians when you talk to them both about, you know, say they stumble upon a rare disease, like they listen to this podcast or they watch a video on it. What advice would you give to them about even entering this space and maybe dedicating their careers to, uh, to helping rare disease patients and family members? Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would think uh, that comes to mind is one, thank you. I mean, we all so appreciate what you're doing. It's a, it's often a very thankless job. And, um, with another Angli one dad, we wrote an editorial for, for nature. And in that, I close by saying, there's people like me that are dreaming about finding you, and we just don't know where you are. And, and so try and seek out, you know, the outliers like Grace. And um, what our experience has been that, uh, especially our, our experience with American doctors, is they go above and beyond. They don't just go the extra mile. They go like an extra 25 miles and on top of already very busy and hectic schedule. And there's so much pressure. And we see this at Stanford and other major clinical centers 
where it's either like focus on, you know, number of patients in the clinic or focus on research. It's very hard to do both. And, and with that pressure, it's just kind of like, you're just moving A to B or A to C. It's just like, you know, very meat and potatoes and try and sprinkle in a few of these outliers, or maybe it's just one outlier like grace that can truly change science and medicine. And it could potentially change your career. It could be your, you know, something that you're now the world's expert in. And um, it's really amazing how one little case like races has shaped so many different individuals uh, throughout science. And, um, and I think it, it will have profound effects long, uh, long after she's gone. Um, and so my, my sort of, uh, sort of leaving moment for, for all the scientists and, and clinicians, researchers that are watching is fi find those outliers and try and nurture those relationships because it's, it's really amazing what can happen. Totally. Yeah. That's a, that's a very much a common theme. And, you know, we had one of my, one of my guests that I, I love uh, having on Philippe Pachter, whose daughter Lizzie Anne's five has Pierre Robin sequence said something similar where, you know, Obviously, anything a clinician or researcher does is very mission oriented and, and good for humanity as a whole and those patients that they see and, and treat. Um, but oftentimes, you know, it, it's like the difference between curing a, a million people who have a headache versus 10 people who have cancer, right? Something much more uh, devastating generally than, than headaches. And so uh, the gratitude you get from the patients and family members, that sense of purpose, being able to put a put a name, put a face, put a story to what you're doing and, and then have that race against time, uh, which adds that urgency because it isn't like, oh, it'll be cured in 50 years. You want to do it now. Um, yeah. It's truly motivating. And that's something we recommend our, our listeners take full attention to as they're deciding what, what career, well, how to dedicate their careers. Spend the summer, spend a year, spend maybe a career at some point researching these, uh, these conditions. Yes, absolutely. And it, it's almost like the, you know, in, in Google, Google kind of made this famous where they had, you know, 75%, 80% of your day is technically your, your job, your, your, the activities that you're supposed to get done. And then the balance is just pie in the sky. Where can this lead? And, and I know there's a lot of different um, pressure for a clinician or researcher, especially with tenure and other things and, and publishing is the name of the game, but there still is opportunity, I think, to nurture these, even at a very small, even if it's like 5% of your time. It, it can really have a huge impact. And I think it's very rewarding personally. Totally. And my hope is, again, foundations as well as centers of excellence will cultivate this, you know, clearly because by, by you bringing together this group of people for the Grace Foundation and funding researchers, now they have the money to, you know, dedicate and, you know, can talk to their tenure board about the work that they're doing. Um, you know, as you know, Osmosis is a teaching company. We like to fill in knowledge gaps. And one question we like to ask our, uh, our guests is if you could snap your fingers and teach any group of people anything, why? what would it be and why? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things that come to mind. And one of them is, I don't think there's a solution yet, but I would challenge people to think about what that solution is, which is, is manufacturing. Cell and gene therapy manufacturing is very, very expensive. And if we were able to figure out a way to do that uh, faster and cheaper. It would accelerate, uh, I think, uh, therapies and cures more than just about anything that's out there right now. This, these therapies work and it's still, it's still early, right? It's not perfect. We can get better vectors that are um, transducing the higher percentage of cells. You know, we can improve the empty full ratio within AV. There's a lot of things, 
that would be one of my biggest ones, which is how do we do this faster and cheaper? Um, but the other thing is biomarkers. At the end of the day, biomarkers are so fundamental. And you see this debate that's going on, you know, with the FDA right now on some of the more larger diseases of, is this biomarker actually measuring success or not? You know, things like the six minute walk test just don't work for a lot of diseases, especially these rare neuromuscular diseases. But a, bi- a drug could work and the biomarker shows it, but the FDA or others might say, you know, that's not good enough. And at the end of the day, what what else do we have to offer these patients? We can't just let them go home and die. And so somehow we need to um, do a better job uh, educating on biomarkers and not only discovering them, but proving them. Uh, I think is really a, a key one-two punch. That uh, yeah, th- those are those are two really good good um, examples that you shared. And and certainly when I was in med school, we weren't being taught about either of these things much. But but every year it's exponential gains. I mean, I'm sure you've kept in touch with. Uh, we had a guy, Brett Copalon, whose daughter you may know has also has epidermolysis pilosa, and he's very That's involved in policies around cell and gene manufacturing. Um, and here at Elsevier, we do a lot of like in silico bio. That's how David Fagenbaum and I got in touch, where it's trying to speed up even like identifying what targets could be repurposed, what drugs could be repurposed for which targets just based on AI and models, computer models for, for where we should look. Uh, and you're, you know, this better than I do. You're in Silicon Valley. So you obviously probably keep in touch with all those developments. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and again, we're, I think we're barely scratching the surface. Um, and, and that's the hard thing with, the the you know the war in ukraine um inflation uh covid you know a lot of those things really screeched to a halt um or slowed down dramatically um and so getting those back and operational again i think is super important and you know and a lot of investors sort of thought rare diseases were cool and sexy and they've also stopped funding there because they've gone into to hunker down mode but you know, kind of going back to my tech entrepreneur days, this is the absolute best time to start something. The the troughs are where where you really see great companies started. So if you have a great idea, get out there, start it. Totally, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's great advice. So I know we're at time, so I did want to leave you uh, with one more question, which is: Is there anything else that you want to get across to our audience that I haven't asked you about yet? Gosh, um, not that I can think of. I mean, I, you know, the I would say that. It really does take a village, honestly, like not just on the clinical and the research side, but it's people like, you know, brainstorming with a John Crowley or a David or any of these guys, the EB team. It is it is so fun. It's so fundamental to our success. There's no way we would be where we were or are right now um, without those people like really kind of supporting us. And I hope that we do the same thing uh, for them. And uh, the days are are tough. You know, it's hard to see, it's hard to get connected with these families and then the patients die. Um, but just kind of keep pushing that envelope, I think is just really, really so important in supporting each other. Absolutely. I think that's great, great advice to end on and the importance of having this strong community. That's one thing I've just learned having been, uh, interviewed wonderful people like yourself over the past several months, especially is how well connected and supportive they are of each other, even though the conditions are very different, maybe the causes are different. It does, you know, this, the saying a rare is one, which I know Tanya Simoncelli and, you know, you, you know, the folks at CDI, Heidi Bjornsson Pinnell are supporting. So Matt, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us and more importantly, the work that you do not only for grace, but for, for any family who has a rare disease, um, 
and then bringing together these researchers and clinicians in the way you have. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great, great meeting up. Hope to do it in person next time. That'd be wonderful. Well, thank you again. And to our audience, thank you for listening. Uh, remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Thank you.